thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 30th of October. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. I'm joined this week by Ben Valsler. Hello. This week we are coming live from Brighton, where we're at a conference for the British Society for Gene Therapy and its European counterpart, the ESGCT. We'll be hearing about some of the latest developments in gene therapy and stem cell therapy, including new treatments for haemophilia and also ovarian cancer. So... If you'd like to get in touch, and we do love to hear from you. You can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. That's at thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook. Or you can drop us an email. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientists, and we are joined by a panel of scientists from all over the world this week, including Simon Waddington and Adrian Thrasher from UCL, and Maria Limberis from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, it's been a packed programme here at the conference all week, so starting with you, Simon, what's been your personal highlight? I think one of the most amazing things, actually, at this conference has been the the reports of uh, uh, gene therapy vectors that have been designed for targeting the central nervous system. So there are a variety of diseases that affect especially children uh, that are, are lethal. And so the only way of actually of treating these at the moment is actually is, is palliatively. Um, and hopefully we've got hope in the future of being able to deliver these, these genes to the central nervous system. Maria? So um, for me it was twofold. I really enjoyed um, the public engagement day that uh, the British Society of Gene Therapy put together. Uh, It was wonderful to actually interact with the students, uh, very bright students, talk to them about gene therapy and stem cells. And on the scientific aspect of the meeting, I really enjoyed uh, listening about the advances in eye gene therapy and all the clinical development for uh, uh, diseases that affect um, vision. Because Adrian... Am I right in thinking that the, the British Society for Gene Therapy have never actually done anything like have an engagement day before? Why did you do that out of interest? Why did you decide you needed that? I, no, actually, actually, we have done this for many, many years now. In fact, and I think we pride ourselves in being one of the only societies worldwide that has really taken a big interest in trying to you know, make our science usable for the public, really. There's a big mystique around genes and stem cells. Uh, in, the, in the public and I, th- I think we can do a very good service uh, by educating them that's what the public want, that's what they tell us Is the feedback good? Do people like it? The feedback's excellent They say uh, the, the feedback we've heard from this meeting is that when are you doing it again? So yeah, it'll get bigger and better we hope Indeed. So, I mean, the, I mean, the thing I don't know about you, Ben, but when I sat in undergraduate lectures at university, we learned all about the fact that there are various genes linked to various diseases, and this is addressed to all of you. And the fact is that people were saying, if we could put this gene right, we'd put the disease right. But the thing that really grabbed me from this conference was that there are people who are now doing that. Yes, there are. So um, there's been so much development ever since gene uh, therapy for specific diseases became a reality. And what we're seeing in the last three to four years now is that a lot of things are moving forward to clinical development. We're actually seeing that gene therapy is working for patients. Uh, We're seeing the first success stories, especially for diseases that um, affect vision, where you have um, children in clinical trials in the UK as well as in the US that were treated with a very small virus, a non-pathogenic virus called adeno-associated virus, and they could actually restore some level of vision in those patients. There's been a very broad range of, of diseases as well, and pretty much every part of the body is accounted for here. And everybody seems very optimistic. It seems that we're, we've almost reached a, a, a watershed moment in that we're really starting to see some results, and the next 10, 20, 50 years are really going to be incredibly positive. I think that's right. I think um, 
10 years ago, we were saying, is it possible to use genes as medicines? There's nothing different. It's a different formulation of a medicine, if you like. Uh, and now what we're, we're, the question we're asking is not can we do it, but how can we make it better and safer? We know that it's working in patients now in the initial studies. And I think in 10 years' time, we'll be looking at large, large studies with proven efficacy for um, different diseases, both inherited diseases and also acquired diseases such as cancer, HIV. And I mean, the other interesting thing is that, and I think the name suggests this, sort of does what it says in the tin. We've also had to come around to the idea of stem cells because they've entered in a big way and actually gene therapy and stem cells are not two different things. They're actually becoming increasingly closer because people are now saying we take what the gene therapists know how to do and we merge it with what the stem cell therapists know how to do and actually we've got a really amazing solution there. Yeah, and I think, again, with stem cells, we, we don't want to overcomplicate this. this these, these are medicines. Uh, and don't forget, bone marrow transplantation, which is stem cell therapy has been ongoing for 40 years. And we know that that's ex- successful for treating not only inherited hematologic diseases, but also cancer. The same thing is going to be true for stem cells in other organs. So if it becomes possible to generate stem cells for uh, neurons or for the brain or for uh, airway, uh, airways, then, then it may well become possible to deliver those in a therapeutic way. So I mean, these are real medicines. We'll hear more from the guys in just a second. But one of the topics that got covered at the conference was haemophilia. And in a moment, we'll hear from Kathy High, who's from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. But first, Mira Synthalingam went to meet an academic with a personal interest in this topic. My name's Adam Jones. My profession is I'm a lecturer in physiology for Sunderland University. And today I'm here at the BSGT stroke ESGT uh, representing patient views as I have uh, severe haemophilia B. With haemophilia, you have different types of haemophilia and you have different severities. The, the main ones that people most know about is haemophilia A and haemophilia B. Essentially, it's, it's a disorder of, of blood clotting. Uh, in any haemophilia, one of the proteins in the blood that goes towards the clotting cascade isn't manufactured by the liver. And so in order to correct that, there's two options, either a liver transplant, which isn't a very good option, or factor replacement therapy. This is actually what you use. So you use use. clotting factor 9. Yeah, clotting factor 9, that's specific for haemophilia B because it's the ninth one that's missing, Christmas factor. In haemophilia A, it's clotting factor 8. And having haemophilia, what exactly happens to you? What are your symptoms? I bleed, uh, basically, for longer than most other people. There's a myth that says that haemophiliacs don't stop bleeding. We do stop bleeding eventually uh, when your blood runs dry. No, (laughs) we do stop bleeding eventually, but it's a prolonged bleeding and it can can cause all all sorts of worries, all sorts of damage. How does this affect your lifestyle? So what do you perhaps have to do differently or what do you have to think about knowing this could happen? I I can't play contact sports. Um, I have arthritis in my ankles and my elbow because of internal bleeding. It does restrict you in your profession, your chosen professions. I can't do anything physical or labouring, which is why I went down the academic route. Some of the haemophiliacs aren't as lucky as me. There are obvious limitations everywhere. Growing up as a child, I wanted to be in the Royal Navy. I even went to get my interview at the Royal Naval Career Office, passed all the selection tests, got as far as the medical, and when I told the the doctor who was performing the medical I had severe haemophilia B, he stopped it right there. That was Adam Jones giving a patient's perspective on what it's like to live with haemophilia with Mira Centralingham. Now, Cathy High, who is based at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, this is an area that you've been looking at, but what are you actually working on? How are you approaching this? Well... A long-term goal of research in the field has been simply to get long-term expression of a donated factor IX gene in a human subject. So the disease was first corrected in mice uh, about 15 years ago, and the effort has been to move successfully from mice to hemophilic dogs and on into people with hemophilia. The work that we've been doing that I talked about today, though, uses a different strategy, not just giving a a new normal copy of a factor IX gene to somebody with hemophilia or to an organism with hemophilia, but rather to go in and seek to actually correct the mutant sequence in uh, an animal with severe hemophilia and restore a normal sequence so that that corrected gene could now be under the control of all the normal 
regulatory signals about when to go up and when to go down and so forth. And so that's the work that I was talking about at the meeting today. It was accomplished using a synthetic molecule called a zinc finger nuclease that was delivered along with a donor sequence. The zinc finger nuclease cleaves the DNA at the site that you want to correct, and then the cell's own mechanisms use the normal donor to make a repair to the cleavage site that now installs the normal sequence instead of the mutant sequence. And in that way, the protein, the hemophilia, the protein that was missing before is now being made correctly, and so as a result the person should have a restoration of the blood level, so their clotting should go back to normal. Correct, correct. And so what we've done is show that that can actually be accomplished in a hemophilic mouse. So I... The mice don't get hemophilia, so this is a mouse you've well, actually, mice probably do get hemophilia, but they don't survive in the wild with hemophilia. So, yes, this was a mouse that we made in the laboratory and installed a hemophilic mutation in and then showed that we could correct it using this approach. So if it works in a mouse, will it work in a person? Well, most therapeutics in hemophilia have actually been tested first in a naturally occurring model of hemophilia the hemophilia dog. And colonies of hemophilic dogs are maintained at a few universities worldwide. And so our next step will actually be to attempt to carry out the same correction in the hemophilia B dog model. So talk us through the method that you'll use in the dogs then. What will you do? Well, we'll do essentially something very similar to what we've done in the mice. We have to design a different set of zinc finger nucleases because the dog factor nine sequence is not identical to the sequence in the mouse that we corrected, but it'll be located in approximately the same place. So we'll give the dog an intravenous injection with an AAV vector that expresses the zinc finger nuclease, and that will induce these double strand breaks in the dog liver. And then at the same time, we will have given this donor with the corrected dog sequence and the, the cellular mechanisms in the dog liver cells will be triggered and will repair uh, the, same, the, the site where the cleavage is, and it should allow expression of normal canine factor nine in the animal. Why are you using that particular virus? Well, that particular virus... It's AAV9. What's special about so, it? So that's a good question, and I have to admit that we chose it out of convenience and efficiency, but were you to consider expression in humans, you, were you con to consider moving this forward into human subjects, it's going to be very important, I think, to identify a vector that will express only short term. Otherwise, I think you may have safety issues that arise from having the zinc finger nucleases expressed continuously. Sure. And the fact that it just goes into the liver or does it go elsewhere? Do you, do you know that? For well, a actually, we, we know that it only expresses in the liver because it has a liver-specific promoter, so it may go to other places. In fact, uh, it does at low levels go to other places, but the promoter does not allow it to express the so zinc this finger this is the, the sequence that controls what genes get turned on and Correct. off. They, they'll only turn on in the liver. They'll only turn on in the liver. And so they make that change in the liver, and then hopefully lifelong thereafter you should preserve the expression of these new proteins? Well, actually, one of the uh, great features of this strategy is that it's a correction in the genome itself, and therefore it will be passed to every daughter cell. And so even if the cell gets old and wears out, uh, it, as long as there are corrections in the sort of stem cells of the liver that give rise to the new cells, then you'll propagate the change. And we did actually show in the mouse model that we could remove two-thirds of the liver. And then as the liver regenerates, you maintain the correction because the res residual cells have the correction installed, and as they divide and give rise to new cells, the correction is maintained. So what proportion of the clotting factors in the blood are now the correct one when you do this? We were only able to correct something like 3 to 7% of the target alleles. So that won't give you a 100% level of factor 9. It'll only give you a modest level. But 
in the range of 3 to 7%. But hemophilia is one of those uh, wonderful diseases where restoring even a very modest level of normal clotting factor in the range of 5% converts the disease from a severe one to a mild one. And if this works the way it does in all these other mammals, it looks encouraging then that you should be able to translate this to the human. There will be additional issues that I think need to be addressed very carefully as this moves into uh, human subjects for testing. Uh, and we talked about a little bit of those in the conference today. We need to make sure in the human genome that these particular zinc finger nucleases don't cleave other target sites. Those are called off-target effects. So we've analyzed those pretty thoroughly in the mouse. But the real tissue of interest, of course, is our human cells. So we'll need to do further analysis in human cells. So those are the kinds of issues that will need to be addressed before this, this kind of strategy moves forward for in vivo uh, gene correction, but this type of strategy uh, is already in place for cells that can be manipulated in the laboratory. So it's in place, for example, in T cells uh, in a trial that uh, is uh, underway for HIV. And, uh, and so, of course, the moving gene transfer from ex vivo to in vivo uh, involves another series of considerations that will have to be addressed. One other question that people often raise is, what about the question of uh, spread of the virus outside of the person you're trying to treat? Is that a risk here, or is it constrained and confined just to the person you are administering it to? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, and when clinical gene therapy studies first started, people were very concerned about the risk of what we call horizontal transmission, would the household contacts be, uh, be at risk for being infected with the, with the virus? So in the initial studies of AAV gene transfer, that was very extensively looked at. People were kept in the hospital for 24 hours, and we had to collect all their body fluids and try to make sure that, that the body fluids were not infectious, that they couldn't transmit that to to their household context. And so fortunately, that question has been resolved, and that doesn't seem to be a big risk. Kathy, thank you. That's uh, Kathy Hi, who is joining us from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the naked scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. This week, we're at the British Society for Gene Therapy's annual conference in Brighton. And one of the sessions looked at how gene therapy can be used to combat cancer. And the way that researchers are trying to do that is by using viruses. Mira Senthalingam went to speak to Queen Mary University of London scientist Ian McNeish. Uh, we talked about ovarian cancer and gene therapy using adenoviruses in particular. And our results show that ovarian cancers that have mutations in the genes BRCA1 and BRCA2 appear to be very sensitive to adenoviral gene therapy. Now, these two genes are mutated in around 40 to 50% of ovarian cancers. And it means that women whose cancers have these mutations should be very sensitive to gene therapy. And obviously, these are the people we should be choosing to take part in our clinical trials. The other thing that we've found is that ovarian cancers that are resistant to the chemotherapy drug paclitaxel seem to be very sensitive to adenovirus. And that raises two really interesting things. Firstly, that resistance to chemotherapy, we found a whole new pathway whereby tumours can be resistant to chemotherapy that's never been described before. But also, secondly, that if we treat people with Taxol first, then we should be treating them with adenoviruses afterwards. So what I hope our results shows is that we found two obvious groups of patients who should be receiving gene therapy in clinical trials in the future, but also it's revealing new mechanisms of how the virus works, but also how chemotherapy might work and how cancers can become resistant to it. And what would the adenoviruses actually be containing then to actually target these cancers? In fact, the adenoviruses contain nothing. So what we've done is we've taken a small part of the adenoviral genome out so that they now only replicate selectively within cancer cells. So it makes them very, very simple to make because you're not putting new genes in. You're literally taking an ordinary virus, removing a small part of its DNA, and that makes it selective to kill cancer cells. 
Why does it only replicate in cancer cells? So the small part of the genome that we've removed interacts with a protein called retinoblastoma. And we know that in cancer cells, retinoblastoma and the 10 other proteins that link with it are almost universally abnormal. So by taking these small little bits of DNA out, the virus can only replicate in cells that have an abnormal retinoblastoma pathway, which is basically all cancer cells. So this gets around any safety concerns about the virus spreading elsewhere? In theory. Clearly, we haven't put our virus into trials yet. However, a very similar virus was put into trial in the States last year in women with ovarian cancer and is still undergoing trials in people with brain tumours. And there have been no safety problems there at all. Quite excitingly, showing that you can get anti-tumour efficacy by injecting similar viruses into people with ovarian cancer and brain tumours. What actually causes the killing of these cancer cells? Just purely the replication of the virus? Uh, the billion-dollar question. I think if we knew that. So we think it's probably multifactorial but viruses replicating within cells do kill them but also that killing triggers an immune response so we think it's probably at least two things the direct killing of the cell by the virus but also that sounding an alarm bell to the body's immune system saying come and kill me so trials that we did a couple of years ago with a herpes uh, virus we were able to demonstrate not only were we getting virus killing but we were also getting immune cells coming into the tumor nodules and we think that those two things combine to uh, cause the overall effect. In terms of what has been done so far, are there any figures as to just how effective this is in treating cancers? Most adenoviruses are only at very early phase one, phase two. The most famous adenovirus is the Onyx 015 virus, which is now licensed in China. It's called H101. It's licensed for the treatment of head and neck cancer. So if you get head and neck cancer in China, you can get routinely treated with adenoviral gene therapy. Um, The viruses that we work on, the second and third generation viruses, are still in phase one and phase two trials. So it would require another three, four, five years at least before we're into big-scale trials, before we can say for certain whether they really will help people. Conceivably, within the next five to ten years, gene therapy with adenoviruses could be routine care in this country. But they are out of the lab, and so they have been trialled in humans. Yes, they have. So there's lots of of, of viruses in clinical trials, not just adenoviruses, rheovirus and the vacciniaviruses. So this this is not just lab stuff. These are viruses that are being used to treat people with cancer right now. In clinical trials, yes. So they're not yet licensed. They're still experimental, but they're progressing from the lab towards the clinic and the patient. And what's the real end goal? I guess if, if if the trials progress and the results remain to be positive. Is it hoped that it would be the treatment of choice above current treatments or would it be, say, that you would identify people resistant to taxol and so on and then resort to this treatment? Well, the end goal is that cancer gene therapy becomes a standard of care. It'll be one of the options available to us along with surgery and chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And the way we're going to treat cancers in the future, the the buzz expression is personalised cancer medicine, is that we're going to identify specific mutations and abnormalities in cancers and say, okay, you need to have this treatment and this treatment because your cancer has these mutations. And if we found a virus that specifically targets cancers with abnormal RB pathway and defective homologous recombination and BRCA mutations, then you say, okay, here is a treatment option for you. So... It will be mixed in with other types of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, but it'll just be another string to our bow to try and treat cancer. Queen Mary, University of London scientist Ian McNeish. With genetic disorders, one concern is that when the damage caused by a particular disease has peaked early on in development, even while a baby could be still in the womb, with such conditions, the use of gene therapy before birth could improve a child's life expectancy, which is a field that Simon Waddington from University College London is working on. Hello, Simon. Hello there. So you were telling us just now about your top sort of picks from the conference, but tell us about your normal life. I mean, what's your research actually looking at? What are you doing? So one of the things that we look, at, look into is the concept of, of delivering the genes in utero, in other words, before birth because there are many diseases, many genetic diseases, where the onset is, is, is very early and can be lethal. So in other words, the baby is actually is born with a genetic disease, and that genetic disease has already damaged the baby's tissues to the extent that you can't reverse the illness. And so what we're looking at is the idea of actually of treating or preventing the disease from ever occurring by transplanting the genes uh, while the baby is in the mother's tummy. How would you make the diagnosis? Uh, how would you know the baby has or is destined to get the condition? So that is a, that's a, a very interesting question. I think that um, the first 
thing to say about this is that quite often uh, a family um, has a baby, finds out the baby has uh, a genetic disease and the child may then die. And then we know, of course, that, that, the, that the parents are carriers of the disease and so that actually is one way to then start to screen for the disease. Another thing to say is that uh, for many diseases that are uh, early and lethal, um, genetic testing is not performed because there is no treatment and so there is not the same sort of driver to actually to test um, the whole population. However, the improvements that we see in, in genetic testing now, uh, the speed of the technology and the accessibility of the technology mean that we can screen for a lot more genetic diseases uh, a lot less expensively. The other thing is that over the past couple of years there's been some very exciting developments where uh, you can actually uh, isolate cells that are circulating in the mother's circulation, but they actually come from the fetus. And so you can isolate those cells, and then you can actually test the genetics of the, of the fetus without actually interfering, sticking a needle into the fetus at all. So you could do genetic diagnosis from nothing more than just a maternal blood sample. That's this right. will give you some warning, especially if you know it might be an at-risk population. Yes, that's right. But is doing gene therapy on an unborn baby just the same as doing gene therapy on person who's actually say an adult is there a different constraint entirely in trying to do that will the techniques that we're investigating in petri dishes and, and in adults actually apply in utero so in one sense actually is that at least in our research it's easier to deliver the genes to a fetus than it is to an adult because an adult has already uh, the immune, immune system has already seen these viruses and you've actually developed an antivirus immunity uh, and want us to bear in mind that many gene therapy vectors are based upon an archetypal virus so that's one problem that we avoid by going in early into the fetus. The other point is actually is that you can actually put more copies, more, gene, more genes into the fetus, and therefore you might actually be able to, to get a wider, wider distribution uh, in the fetus too. But I think that one of the things that we have to consider is that you're actually dealing with, with two patients. Of course, you've got to consider the health of the mother as well as the fetus, uh, and this is something that we've obviously been considering in our research over the past 10 years. How do you do your research? Because... It's already a very emotionally charged area, yes. looking at pregnancy and children that haven't been born yet that might have a problem. Is there an animal model that you can use which will give you a, a sort of faithful representation of what might happen in a human? We work primarily with, with mouse models, and, and so we've actually we're able to deliver the genes into the fetal mouse by the same routes as one would be able to do a blood sample in a fetal human. So obviously is that the mouse model is, is a, a, a long way away from, from the human in terms of physiology. Uh, but the principles are the same, uh, all the, the scale. And, and I think we're seeing this through the various gene therapy trials that are being performed anyway, is that, is that obviously is you have to test the safety of these in you know, lower animal models before you scale it up to human beings. So what techniques are you investigating that you're trying to use? So what we're looking at, for example, is that, is that we've been interested in neurodegenerative diseases. And so one particular interest of ours is Gaucher disease, which is a deficiency in the enzyme glucose ribosidase. And humans with the severe form of this disease, called neuropathic Gaucher disease, um, they will only expect to live uh, for two years after birth. Uh, we have a mouse model of this, uh, where the mice only live for 14 days after birth. And so we're using uh, a vector called AAV9, which is adeno-associated virus 9, and, and uh, people found a couple of years ago that when you injected this into the circulation, you could cross the blood-brain barrier and could actually deliver the genes to the central and peripheral nervous system. And this is the main problem with neuropathic Gaucher disease, that you can't get anything into the brain. And so we're hoping to be able to deliver additional copies of glucose ribosidase uh, in order to at least cure uh, the mouse model. And the fact that you're going into a brain which is smaller than yes. it will be when you're trying to cure a much bigger child or adult yeah. makes it easier because you're able hit you're able to hit cells when they're at the stem cell stage so yes. then all of the daughter cells will inherit that change well, will they well the thing is actually of course with the brain is that, is that at birth uh, you're not actually adding any more cells or not adding many more cells to your brain your nerves are, uh, your, your neurons are already in place uh, so we are, we are using a, a vector that doesn't in, integrate itself into the host genome but actually because your brain is, is no longer dividing these, these vectors can then stay around for the rest of the lifetime. So you should get lifelong protection? That's right, yes. Any risks? I think as, as a community we've always been very aware of any potential risks. So uh, the risks in terms of fetal gene transfer would be um, uh, that you are also uh, uh, putting a needle into the mum. Um, and uh, there's always a, a, a small but still 
actual risk of, of damaging the fetus or causing, causing birth. Are you physically injecting this into the bloodstream of the fetus? Well, Is that what you've got to do to, well, to, or to get it into the brain? How are you that's doing right. That? I, mean, the, I mean, one of the big problems actually with brain gene therapy has been that you actually have to stick a needle into the brain in multiple sites because it, it doesn't spread through the brain naturally. Whereas these new and exciting vectors, you can put it into the bloodstream and then it can actually deliver genes throughout the entire brain and through the spinal cord. So there's some exciting work coming out on spinal muscular atrophy um, in, in mouse models and actually in larger animal models. Uh, in the mouse model, they actually they cured um, the, the disease, the spinal muscular atrophy, which was completely stunning. And so these researchers are actually now looking at the larger models before uh, considering clinical trials. I think I went to that lecture this morning. I was pretty blown away. You're absolutely right. Simon Waddington from University College London, who's with us for the rest of the programme. He's standing by to answer some of the huge array of Facebook questions that are piling in. It's the facebook.com slash the naked scientists if you want to get in touch with us via that route. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. Now, a major session at this meeting has looked at the use of gene therapy to treat some forms of blindness, including the launch of a new clinical trial pioneered by a UK group led by Oxford ophthalmologist Robert McLaren. What we've been doing this week is very exciting. We've actually used uh, gene therapy to attempt to correct an inherited eye disease of of the type of retinitis pigmentosa. We've done this on a 63-year-old gentleman, Jonathan Wyatt, who suffers from a condition known as choroideremia. And choroideremia is one of those inherited diseases that affects men because it's on the X chromosome. It presents in childhood and initially starts with people losing their night vision. And then gradually, as they get into their teens, they notice that the peripheral vision disappears and they eventually develop tunnel vision. So they can just see a tiny island of vision in the centre, and then around about the age of 40 or between 40 and 50, that very small island of vision then disappears. Mr Wyatt only has a tiny bit of vision left in the very centre of his eyesight, and the operation we've done with the gene therapy, we've tried to replace the gene that's missing in him in order to preserve that little island of vision and keep it alive. Why does this condition happen in the first place? Do we understand what the disease process is that makes that progressive loss of vision happen? Yes, absolutely. Effectively, the protein that is missing is involved in moving vesicles around in cells, and and vesicles are sort of little compartments that move around carrying proteins from one part of the cell to another. And the actual protein that's missing in choroideremia is a protein that somehow labels the vesicles so that they know where to go and they can be transported correctly. And why does that lead to the pattern of visual loss that the patients have? That's something which we're not entirely sure of, but it seems to be that this particular protein is absolutely critical in the retina, in the eye. There is another protein which can take on the role of labelling these vesicles in other cells in the body, but in the eye, this other protein doesn't work as well, and so the patients do have the effect. But it's interesting because it is a disease, like, like many genetic diseases, which is only manifest in the eye and doesn't really have any effect elsewhere in the body. So how have you tried to tackle it? Well, what we've done is we've engineered an adeno-associated viral vector, which is a very small viral particle, and inside that we've packaged the missing gene. We like this particular viral vector because we do have good safety data on it, and we know that it can be injected into the retina without causing any significant side effects. We're using the vector very much like a Trojan horse to to get through the cell's defences and then open up inside and release the gene that's missing in choroideremia into the cells and hopefully that will be sufficient to allow the cells then to continue functioning normally and keep them alive. Which cells is it going into? Well we're targeting both the lining of the retina which is known as the retinal pigment epithelium but also we've made a fairly significant step forward in gene therapy in the eye in that we've modified the vector slightly so that it infects the light sensitive cells, the photoreceptors which line the eye and in order to do that we haven't changed the shape of the virus, we've actually changed the DNA sequence a bit so that the virus and the gene is expressed within the photoreceptors, particularly the rods which are those responsible for night vision in addition to the lining of the eye. Does this mean that the progression of the disease is arrested, that the vision will stop getting any worse, or does it mean that actually the vision can recover in affected people? 
Well, again, that's a very good question, and probably we will only know for sure in the midst of time when we've had a chance to see the results. But what we predict to happen is we think that the disease will be arrested because it's a relatively slow degeneration, and we think that even a small amount of the protein expressed would keep the cells alive. But what we've noticed is because children boys, they lose their night vision before there's any significant degeneration of the retina. We think that there is some functional defect. In other words, that the actual rods photoreceptors themselves do not work as well in the absence of this protein. And we've designed our study so that we can do quite complicated visual tests in the aftermath of the gene therapy to see if this night vision returns. And of course, what's really nice about working in the eye is that we've treated one eye and in all our patients, we can then compare the treated eye to the other eye, which hasn't received the vector, so we can be really sure whether or not the effect has worked. And practically speaking, how do you actually get the virus into the eye? Well, the virus goes in through quite a complicated procedure where we make three small incisions in the white of the eye, which is just behind the coloured part, the iris, and we pass these probes into the eye. We remove the jelly from the back of the eye, first of all, and then we inject fluid underneath the retina, through a very, very small needle, which is actually thinner than a human hair, that lifts the retina up and it detaches it. And it would be a bit like operating inside a tyre, where we actually try and remove the inner tube and we want to inject the viral suspension between the inner tube and the outer wall of the tyre. So we have to make sure that we don't make too big a hole in the inner tube. And also we need to separate the inner tube from the outer wall of the tyre. And one of the difficult things which we haven't been able to predict is how these patients with choroideremia, whether or not these two layers of the retina are stuck together, because of course with all the inflammation and cell death that's been going on throughout their lives, it's possible that the, that the retina will be quite heavily stuck together. And this is a bit un unpredictable, but fortunately in the case of Mr. White, the first patient we treated this week, the retina separated very cleanly and we were able to inject the virus into the correct compartment without any complications. So when you're doing all this, are you physically watching what's happening by looking through the pupil at the back of the eye so you can see where these needles are going and what the effect is of the injections? Yes, we have a very high-powered microscope which has a series of lenses on it. Most importantly, is that it inverts the image. So when we look into the eye, we are seeing the image the correct way around. Otherwise, we'd have to do everything back to front, which would be quite difficult. And in the operation itself, what I have in, in my left hand is a tube, which is like a torch, a very high-powered torch, which I use to light up the back of the eye. And in my right hand, I have the actual needle with the very small tip, which goes under the retina. And by looking down the microscope, I can actually see myself moving these two instruments around. My feet are controlling various other parts of the microscope and the injection system, which allow me to deliver the fluid into the retina without having to sort of fumble around uh, with another hand. So not too much coffee in the morning before you do that. Um, what are the outcome measures? How will you follow up this initial patient and then the others in order to test whether or not it's working? And when will you know? Well, I think the main thing that, that we're interested in is first that the patient comes to no harm and that his vision returns and the operation itself does not cause damage and the virus is delivered without any problems and I, and I can say fairly confidently now that that, that is the case indeed um, he was interviewed live on the BBC News uh, on Thursday evening and very, gave a very good account of having good vision in the eye and that's very reassuring the second stage will then be to look at his night vision and also to have a look at his retinal function we do that with a machine called a microperimeter which is a, a machine which shines a light in different parts of the vision and the patient will then press a button when he or she sees the light and the light that's shone in the eye is also tracked with an infrared camera so a computer knows exactly where on the retina the light is being shone and can correlate that with the patient's responses. In the long run we know that this condition has a progression of about 10% per year in terms of reduction and shrinkage in the size of the retina, and we can measure that on the back of the eye. So by measuring the retina that we treat, we have a very objective test about whether or not the disease progression has been halted because, of course, we can compare the treated retina to the untreated eye on the other side. We would expect that 10% per year shrinkage to continue. Rob McLaren from Oxford University. You'll remember in the film Jurassic Park, scientists managed to reconstruct dinosaurs from DNA preserved for tens of millions of years. Sadly for dinosaur fans, though, DNA doesn't actually last that long, but it now seems that proteins might. 
and an international team of scientists has managed to produce the first ever images of the residues of skin proteins from a 50 million year old fossil. The technique will not only be used to piece together the evolution of ancient creatures, but it can even help with the storage of radioactive waste. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went to meet the leader of the research group, Roy Wagalius, at the University of Manchester. So what we're looking at right now is a very, very small, probably juvenile reptile from the Green River Formation. It's about 50 million years old, or let's say about five centimetres long. It's only part of the organism, and we think this poor, unfortunate little critter probably got bitten in half, and that's why it's ended up in the fossil record. Because if we look at it, there's almost a long tail and two legs, I guess, almost like frog's legs, but probably about half the length of of my finger, embedded in this quite thin, sandy, almost like a a slate. That's right, that's right. You can see a, a long central tail, and then you can see where the legs join in, where the pelvic region is, and then the organism is truncated. Mostly what you can see is the skin. And if you look at it very, very closely, you can actually see that there's some of the patterning left in the skin. It is mottled, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And that's the scale pattern. And that's why we thought this would be a tremendous specimen to look for the residue and patterning of proteins. You're actually looking for remnants of of proteins, of the molecules that made up the skin. Some remnants of the original chemistry. After... 50 million years. That's exactly right. It's the chemical fossil. Now, that seems like an outrageous thing to propose, doesn't it? And yet, we have absolutely no problem thinking about organic molecules being preserved as long as we don't think about what species they've come from or from exactly where they've come. We just put them in our gas tanks or petrol tanks and burn them. This is a chance, using some of these very, very sophisticated techniques, to track back and find some of these very, very robust organic molecules and trace them back to their source. And indeed, we were able to do that. So what did you do? Because it's a very different process to the sorts of things paleontologists normally get up to. And that's why I describe myself as a geochemist. Usually, paleontologists look at bone, and then they look at structures. What we wanted to get to was using chemical techniques. And we had this idea of using a different part of the electromagnetic spectrum very, very simple thing that we did. We just used infrared light rather than visible light. Now, the infrared light gives you an idea about the presence of organic molecules because an awful lot of the infrared spectrum will cause vibrations in the organic components. And by that, what, what that means we can do, we can identify specific parts of organic molecules. And the, the specific parts of the organic molecules that are present within this fossilized lizard skin are extremely similar to the organic molecular fragments that are present in beta-keratin from existing um, lizard skin. And so we did a comparison of the distribution and types of these organic, we'll call them functional groups. Uh, We mapped these organic functional groups and compared them from this fossilized skin to skin taken from a present-day gecko. And the distribution patterns map very, very nicely. So what can you conclude then? And what that showed us is that the protein residue derived from the original skin still has some of the character of the original proteins, and the distribution of it is controlled by the original biological structure. It can and and it will have a big, big impact on understanding evolution because we can get down to to these protein sequence levels. Preservation of DNA, that's just not going to go back into deep geological time. But the preservation of some of these proteins from these soft tissues does... And this has applications beyond just understanding evolution. One of the things that I'm very interested in, in fact, the other side of my research has to do with radioactive waste disposal and how we can safely sequester radioactive waste. Now, the safety cases for most countries have to demonstrate containment for between 100,000 and a million years. Well, this is a 50-million-year experiment between trace metal contaminants and organic compounds that tells us one way that nature has been able to sequester organic compounds and trace metals in place. That's very, very useful information for us. 
Roy Wagalius from the University of Manchester talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. And you can find that and more Planet Earth resources on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth. Ben, thank you. We're live at the British Gene Therapy Society's annual conference, which is taking place in Brighton. And uh, we're talking about and reviewing some of the highlights of the conference this year. And we have with us in the studio Simon Waddington, who is from University College London, but also uh, Maria Lynn Berris, who is over from the States, but originally, I think, from Australia, That's listening right. to you. So where do you work now? I work in Philadelphia, in okay. the States, at the University of Pennsylvania. And you are a fully paid-up gene therapist. In fact, looking at the conference guide, you seem to be presenting in... Every single session. And yes. I don't mean that in a disparaging way. It's obviously very good to see. It means your work is great for us because you know everything. Not everything, but um, uh, my interest has been in cystic fibrosis. That's what I was trained in and more recently starting to work in gene therapy for eye diseases. Can you just review for us what we understand about cystic fibrosis, what it is, what causes it, why it happens? So cystic fibrosis is a very devastating disease. It um, affects Caucasian populations and the frequency um, is really high for um, Caucasian populations. So one in 2,000 live births is affected uh, with CF. There's no uh, cure for the disease. And um, for someone to imagine the impact of um, the devastation of uh, lung disease, you, you just think to your worst cold ever, your worst chest cold ever, and that progressively getting worse. And Patients um, basically uh, don't have a treatment, um, and when um, lung disease becomes so uh, bad, the only option is a lung transplant. And of and course, not many lung, of those going exactly. Around, lung transplantations are down, so um, it's a very poor outcome for patients with uh, severe lung disease. At a molecular level, what do we understand about what's causing the condition? So the gene was uh, identified almost 20 years ago, 22 years ago to be exact. And um, it's, a, it's a gene um, that encodes a chloride channel. Uh, the chloride channels have got a very fancy name, the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator. And it's uh, situated on the top of the epithelial cells, which are cells that line the, uh, the lungs. And um, what the function of this channel is, is to control the fluid that lines our lungs, which allows us not to get colds when we walk into environments that are either dusty or full of bacteria and viruses. So the first thing that you do when you walk into a dusty room is cough, and that's the natural um, uh, defense of your lung to get rid of what it's inhaled. In the case of cystic fibrosis, where those patients don't have that gene and the product, the lungs don't have the normal function of actually trying to get rid of all those noxious particles that they inhale, which means that everything that they inhale remains in the lungs, and whether it's bacteria or viruses, they replicate, uh, they make a really nice home for themselves and progressively worsen the lung disease. I'm quite glad you brought up the idea of, of how lungs defend themselves normally because that must be a big challenge for a gene therapist to need to overcome. Lungs are pretty good at preventing themselves from getting infected because they have all these defences, mucus, and they have these mucociliary escalator that washes the mucus out. So anything you want to try and get into a lung cell has got to bypass all those defences Exactly, first. exactly right. So the same way that our lungs protect us from those daily encounters with the bacteria and the viruses they don't have the ability to uh, know the difference of a gene therapy vector versus something noxious that they've inhaled. So the same defences that apply to those noxious particles will apply to a gene therapy vector. So what we need to do um, when we develop the gene therapy vectors, and these, this is work that we've uh, constantly been doing in the field, is to develop vectors that actually can bypass those barriers. And if we can't find vectors that can bypass those barriers, we try to uh, momentarily disrupt those barriers. Again, those barriers are there for a reason, and that's to protect us from uh, noxious particles. We don't want to introduce them along with the gene therapy vectors in those patients that will be susceptible to infections. Some people are trying to persuade the lung cells to take up individual bits of DNA. Others are using viruses to do this. So is that your approach? Yes, so we're using viruses. Uh, we believe that... Um, Vectors that are based on viruses are very effective. Uh, we've all had our common cold, and we've had it more than once. Um, and a common cold is very effective. You see the symptoms straight away, and um, it, it spreads throughout the lung very quickly. So we're trying to harness that ability of a virus to get into the cells of the epithelium, the cells of the lung, 
to actually um, use that. Which viruses are you using? So we're using a small virus. It's called an adeno-associated virus. It's never been associated with any uh, human disease. It's effectively been used and translated into clinical trials. And in fact, um, there have been uh, recent successes with eye diseases using this particular virus. So how are you using it? What do you need to do to that virus so that you can get genes into the lung cells that need them? So in terms of the virus, what you do is you sort of remove what you consider the virus to have in terms of pathogenic uh, genes. So you remove those genes that are pathogenic that could potentially cause disease and you replace them with the therapeutic gene, in this case cystic fibrosis gene. And But you allow those genes that are basically necessary for that virus to attach onto the cell, to move through the cell, to go and integrate or uh, stay close to the DNA of the um, host cell. So uh, we try to harness what's good about the virus and remove what's bad about the virus, and by removing the bad um, part of the virus, incorporating the therapeutic gene. And so in essence, the same way that you would get your common cold and all those symptoms, you will now replace the common cold with the cystic fibrosis gene. So the virus that came in from the cold, if you will. The problem I can see with this, though, is that the cells that you're going to hit with your therapy, because this is something a patient is going to breathe in or have washed into their lungs or aerosolized in, isn't it? You're going to hit cells that are short-lived. Correct. And that means that you're going to have to keep repeating this therapy. So I can see sort of two problems. One, that's an inconvenience. Uh, and two, um, won't the patients become immune to continual exposure to this virus and they'll just develop antibodies and that will prevent you doing this? Correct. So depending on the virus that you use, um, the, it has the ability to stably integrate into the genome, into the DNA of that cell. Now, in the case of, for example, a ciliated cell, which is the cell that um, actually lies on the surface of your lung, that's considered a terminally differentiated cell, which means that once that cell dies, it does not give rise to any gene-corrected cells. We still don't know, even though there are hints at what is the actual stem cell or the progenitor of the airway, but with the viruses that we have in hand, we don't only target one specific cell type. That's the beauty of the viruses that we use, that we can target several different types of the airway epithelium. Now, ideally, you'd like to target the stem cells, we don't know which ones those are, but um, we're hoping that with the strategies that we're using, at least one population or subpopulation will have the ability to become a stem cell or to give rise to gene-corrected cells. Now, the event that you don't um, transduce or uh, target those um, stem cells, you will need to readminister your virus. Now, we do have some window, some time um, in terms of um, getting a readministration. These cells live between three and six months. So with certain viruses, the neutralizing antibody comes down um, to a level, to a low level, that will allow readministration of the virus. Oh, neat. So you can get around it just because the immune system loses interest. Exactly. And, and you can come back in and hit it again. Exactly. Wouldn't a better way, though, and you sort of hinted at this with the stem cell idea, wouldn't a better way be to inject the virus into the bloodstream and program it to go for the stem cells in the lung, assuming we can find them, so that you would hit the stem cell and then it would propagate into all of the daughter cells the beneficial change that you've impregnated it yes, with, Yes, um, that could be an option. The problem is that once you inject things into um, the systemic circulation, if you will, everything gets cleared by the liver. And so you'll either end up uh, losing a lot of your virus that's swept by the liver or you'll have to um, inject bucket loads of vector. Now, the more vector you inject into a human, the more likely it is that you're going to have a devastating immune response just by the mere fact that you're injecting a lot more vector that you need. So while that could potentially be an approach, a more effective way is to actually try to localise your delivery to where you want the vector to actually transfer the gene of interest. And to finish off, Maria, how close are you to being able to do this in a human? Um, in terms of the work that we do in our lab, we focus on adeno-associated viruses. Um, we have collaborations with others that work on lentiviruses. The field has made tremendous um, uh, work and advances over the last 10 years. We're not ready for a clinical trial. Um, we're still answering questions that have become apparent 
as a result of clinical trials that have not produced the results that we expected. And what that allowed us to do, if you will, the failures, um, even though that's potentially a wrong word for a clinical trial, the failures that that uh, became apparent allowed us to ask questions that have become very important as we try to move forward with gene therapy, which is trying to make our vector more efficient, trying to make a vector more safe. And the truth of the matter is that you don't really know how well your vector is going to um, be unless you inject it in a human. And that's the case that's happened with many clinical trials and the experiment actually starts when you inject a human. In terms of um, the progress in the field so far, there is an active uh, gene therapy trial, and that's the one from the UK Cystic Fibrosis Gene Therapy Consortium, in which they're using a lipid-based approach to actually deliver plasmid encoding for the cystic fibrosis gene in patients with cystic fibrosis here in the UK. Terrific. Maria Limberis, and she's sticking around because we have a whole Facebook page full of questions, which we're going to get to very, very shortly. Laying the facts bare. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Chris Smith. And we're also joined by Maria Limbera, Simon Waddington, and Adrian Thrasher. And between us, hopefully, we'll get through some of the enormous pile of questions that you have sent in to Facebook. That's thenakedscientist.com slash Facebook. Let's start off with one from Ryan Chown. And he wants to know if it's possible to use gene and or stem cell therapies to enhance the thinking capacities of the brain. So can we enhance our cognitive abilities using stem cell therapies and gene therapy. So I think, I think uh, well, that would be a very exciting idea. And uh, I think there's been a film about it recently, hasn't there, about uh, in Plants of the Apes. But um, even the, the simplest of genetic diseases, what we're learning is really we don't understand everything about the, the pathology and how the genetic mutation actually makes the disease. And so, as I, as I mentioned about glucosidase deficiency, what we find actually is that it's a very complex disease, even though it's just one gene missing. And so, therefore, there are many, many different genes that are contributing to, um, to different aspects of thought. Um, and I don't think we'd even know where to start in terms of enhancement of thinking. You've sort of hinted at something that Ian Borokovic has also mentioned here, which is about the undesirable effects. Now, Planet of the Apes, of course, we cognitively enhance chimps and end up with them running the world. That's an undesirable effect from a gene therapy. But how do we go about to look into and prevent these undesirable effects? Obviously, the more realistic ones. So uh, we've spent a lot of time, gene therapy and stem cell, stem cell therapy researchers have spent a, a huge amount of time not only trying to make the most uh, efficient gene therapy vectors and stem cell uh, treatments, but also to ensure that they are uh, as safe as possible. And when we're using different gene therapy vectors, for example, if we're using ones that are based on, on uh, HIV, uh, these actually insert themselves into the genome, and they can therefore disrupt the genome. So there's certainly been work over the past eight years to try to uh, firstly make them as safe as possible so they don't affect the surrounding genes, uh, but also, as, as Cathy High alluded to in her presentation today, what we've been doing for many years in gene therapy is actually is providing a supplementary copy of the gene uh, but actually still leaving uh, the, the mutated gene in. Whereas what Cathy is doing and various other uh, researchers in the community is that they're actually they're creating toolkits to be able to actually repair uh, the, the gene and return it to what we'd, we would perceive to be its normal function. Uh, and that, although it's inefficient at the moment, uh, is very exciting as, as a, almost an ideal safe gene therapy. And as with all types of medicine, there must be all sorts of regulation, all sorts of boxes that you need to tick before you can actually put something on the market, or even before you can get it into trials in people. Of course. Gene therapy is no different from any other pharmaceutical therapy in terms of its regulation. Um, We obviously have to go through a fairly rigorous um, ethical process and also be able to ensure that we can give medicines that are made or manufactured in the right ways that they're safe for people. Thank you, Adrian. Um, Martin Moxon, also on Facebook, wants to know if it's possible to alter genes on an organism-wide scale, altering every single cell. We've talked about targeting them and we've talked about giving them into just the areas where you want to make the changes. Is it likely to be possible to change every single cell? 
Potentially, if you were to um, uh, go about some work that um, Simon's been doing in terms of going in prenatally. So we know, for example, that if you go prenatally with certain animal models and you inject a virus in um, systemic circulation, it will go everywhere. So we can get transduction, um, positive expression of a particular gene in the liver, in the brain, in the lung, every single organ. Um, but again, uh, you have um, side effects associated with that, it, depending on the gene and where it's expressed. You don't want to be expressing a gene in a location where it wasn't, be, it wasn't supposed to be expressed in the first place. But the technology is available to do something like that based on animal data. Again, you've hinted at another question, actually, and this is from Ronald Rudolph, who asks about epigenetics. Now, you've said about the way that genes are regulated. Epigenetics essentially just means beyond the genome. So a gene codes for a protein, and then an epigene might code to turn it off or turn it up or turn it down or tell it whereabouts in the body to work. So what does this sort of relatively young science of epigenetics, what does that tell us about the sort of stem cell therapy and gene therapy that we're looking at today? Epigenetics is, uh, is increasingly important in our understanding of how genes work. As you say, it regulates in some ways how the genes are turned on or off. Um, it's important through dev developmental processes. It's important uh, in adult cells and fetal cells. It's also important in gene therapy because we know if we don't get the sequences right that the genes can become epigenetically modified, so may switch off unexpectedly, which is undesirable, or may switch on unexpectedly, which is also undesirable. So epigenetics is, is important. There's a lot, a lot of ongoing work. Adrian, I think this is probably for you as well. Belinda O'Keefe has, has written and said, can gene or stem cell therapy be used in the treatment of immune disorders, such as common variable immune disorder or primary immune disorders? Yeah, that's certainly the case. Uh, uh, interestingly, the, the primary immune deficiencies have been one of the key disorders that has taught us proof of principle that we can treat the, successfully treat patients by gene therapy and, and looking 40 years back now by uh, bone marrow transplantation. Uh, as we uncover the genetic mistakes that underlie these disorders, of course, we, we can uh, apply the technologies to treat them. So, and common variable immunodeficiency is one of those disorders. Although we only understand the genetic cause for about 10% of them, for uh, over the next few years, then we, we will be able to uh, uh, apply genetic technologies, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Adrian. And certainly that's all the gene therapy we have for this week, unless, of course, any of you guys have got a way to stop men needing to shave, as that ties into our Question of the Week with Diana O'Carroll. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. This week I neglected to shave my upper lip just to see what would happen. Hello, I'm Damon from Blackburn. Do cat's whiskers and human facial hair have anything in common in terms of their uses? Aside from terrifying your boyfriend, what else can a human moustache do? Hello, I'm Nick Crumpton and I'm a zoologist in the Mammal Evolution and Morphology Group in Cambridge and we're here in the University's Zoology Museum. Now, to a certain point, the whiskers on your cat's face and the stubble on mine look pretty similar. After all, they're both part of our pelage, our insulating furry coat. But whiskers are a type of specialised hair called vibrissae. Now, among other places, they're found on the maxillary, that's the upper lip region, and they come in both macro and micro forms. And in the same way as normal hairs, they're keratinous structures growing out of the skin, the epidermis. But whiskers tend to be far thicker, and as we know, they act as mechanoreception organs. Now, obviously, when someone pulls a hair out of my head, it hurts. And to some extent, all hairs act as mechanoreceptors for very light touch. So I can feel if something brushes very lightly up against the hairs on my arm. But vibrissae sport a suite of tactile sensitive organs at their base. So any tiny displacement results in a far more complicated signal being transduced to the animal's brain, where an enlarged portion of its somatosensory cortex is concerned with interpreting signals as spatial information. Now, beardy chaps don't have this sort of specialisation within our brains. And in fact, humans are almost unique in being one of only two mammals known not to sport any vibrissae at all, along with the anteater. But it's recently been reported that the muscles used to move whiskers around are present in the human lip, but as very degenerate vestigial structures. 
Now, our beards are more than likely the result of sexual selection, like the mutton chops and mustaches on some old world monkeys. And they just help their owners look dashing, if maybe a little bit scruffy. Mustaches don't appear to have much in the way of function for people, and generally, they only really appear on the faces of men. More interestingly, in some ethnic groups, males grow very little or no facial hair at all, so it looks as if human moustaches are there to attract a mate and act as a soup strainer. On the forum, RD posted some beautiful examples of moustaches, and you can find them at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. But if that view's getting too much, why not don a pair of sunglasses? Hello, I'm Philippa from Oxford. I heard that the pupil of an eye widens when it looks through dark tinted glass. If this is the case, why do we wear sunglasses? Surely the eye gets more sunlight than it does without sunglasses, and this must be a bad thing. If the pupil has to compensate for lower light levels, how is it that sunglasses protect the eye? Answers to Chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can Twitter at Naked Scientists. You can write on our forum with thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Or you can check out the Naked Scientist's Facebook page. Diana O'Carroll, who will shed some light on the sunglass story next week. Well, that's it from this week's coverage from the British Society for Gene Therapy's annual conference in Brighton. Thank you to our guests, Simon Waddington, Maria Limberis, and also Adrian Thrasher. Next week, we'll be joining the National Cancer Research Institute for their conference in Birmingham to catch up with the latest research from the cancer field. So if you have any questions on that, then email them to us. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can tweet them to at Naked Scientists. Thank you to our production team this week, Mira Senthalingam, Tom Simpkins, Hannah Critchlow, Dave Ansell, and from Ben Valsler and from me, goodbye. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.